Hello and welcome to Season 3 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and to see if we can find any elements that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and vice president of Whimsy, Giles Goff. And I am entrepreneur and undersecretary of spiciness, <laughs> Phil Coleman. <laughs> And we're currently continuing this little mini-season of God in Film where we're going to look at TV shows that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories that jump out at us. So today, we're going to be looking at a classic show, one that has influenced political thought for a generation of people. So let's climb aboard Air Force One as we look for faith parallels in Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. Phil, you're new to this show and you've not seen all of it, so what did you think? You know when you just you just wake up for the first time and think, hang on a minute, why wasn't I always watching The West Wing? <laughs> like that's how I feel about it. It's it's great. It's cinematically yeah. wonderful. The acting is absolutely on point. The writing is just is just masterful. And yeah. I've got a lot of time for it, and I think I know what my new binge show is going to be. So <laughs> yeah, it's great. I really really enjoyed it. It can be a tough show sometimes because it takes you. Sometimes it'll take you a few watches just to work out what the hell is going on. Two Cathedrals yeah. is the first one I watched, and to be honest. Like, I just, I, watching that was just, it's just beautiful. Martin Sheen there, just acting the crap out mm-hmm. of acting. And the story was wonderful as well. You, you didn't need to really have seen much more of the, the show before to sort of get an idea of what was going on. Yeah. And, uh, and it's great. I, I've just got a lot of time for it. I worry that I've ruined it for you now because I've shown you one of the absolute best episodes <laughs> right from the start. So the rest of the show is going to struggle to sort of get up to that standard. But trust me, there's seven seasons and there's more There's more than one highlight in it. I mean, I've been watching West Wing probably since I was about 16, 17, something like that. Mm. Um, this sort of show has had, I think, in a lot of ways, probably influenced my the way I approach things politically. You know, it, not necessarily the policies, but the way I think about things and the, the sort of defining principles for how I how I go about sort of looking at something. You know, mm. this is a, a fantastic show, and it's um yeah, it's we're, we're gonna have to be very careful what we say because this, this is an absolutely beloved show. We'll do our best. Without further ado, let's hear Phil's facts. Okay, so. The West Wing is an American serial political drama television series created by Aaron Sorkin that was originally broadcast on NBC from September 1999 to May 2006. The series is set primarily in the West Wing of the White House, where the Oval Office and offices of presidential senior staff are located during the fictitious Democratic administration of Josiah Bartlett. It is regarded as one of the greatest and most influential television series of all time. Fact Uno. Traditionally, during a Republican administration, a portrait of Theodore Roosevelt is hung in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing of the White House, and during a Democratic administration, a portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt is hung there, the former Roosevelt being Republican and the latter being a Democrat. In the Roosevelt Room of the Bartlett White House, portraits of both Roosevelts are hung. How's that for diplomacy? Wait, we need to, we need to decide right now. Are we going with Roosevelt or are we going with Roosevelt? Uh, let's go with Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll I'll try my best, but I've been I, I, I just I've know been calling was... him Roosevelt for the past sort of twenty odd years. Really, Roosevelt? I can't yeah, I, I can't yeah. imagine calling it yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Is that really how it's pronounced? I, I mean, ask your wife, Elise. How do you pronounce Ro- Roosevelt? She says Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, I've. I mean, do you? I feel stupid now. It's, right, okay. Every day's a school day. 
Every day's a school day. Every day's a school day. So, okay, we'll go straight in with fact two then, I guess. So, once, while the show was filming in Georgetown, at about three o'clock in the morning, an irate lady reportedly came out in a bathrobe with a bunch of guys. She said, What the hell's going on? I have an early morning at the State Department and... By the way, you people don't even have a Secretary of State on your show, and I think you should have one, and it should be a woman. That woman was Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State under Bill Clinton between 1997 and 2001. I flipping love Madeleine Albright. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I don't know much about Madeleine Albright, but you know she actually turns up, she has a, a guest spot in uh, Parks and Recreation. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a little storyline where where they go to Washington and uh, Leslie Nope's boyfriend is is working in Washington for a while and Leslie spends more and more time there. And there's one bit where she's grabbing lunch talking about her man problems with, with Madeleine Albright. It's fantastic. <laughs> that sounds really good. I need to really re- watch more of that. It's meant to be absolutely wonderful, that show, but I just keep forgetting to watch it. It's got a share some DNA with the West Wing because the the writers of it sort of said, you know, we, we absolutely adore the West Wing, but we, we're comedy writers. So we, what they did was they made it about local government. So instead of it being life or death situations, it's going to be, will we open a park in this area or, or the swings <laughs> are bust again and how do we get that fixed? Trust Quite me, you will absolutely adore um Parks and Recreation. So the set was supposedly so realistic that Warner Brothers Studio tour groups are not permitted inside the sound stages where the show was filmed due to White House security concerns. Some exterior sets, including the South Portico, may be viewed on the tour. That's interesting because what I heard was that they actually they fictionalized some areas of the, of the west wing because you know so much of it is like all windows and and like looking through into that sort of bullpen area they basically did that because you needed a sense of space a sense of scale because otherwise you're just looking at really dull looking rooms to be well, perfectly honest you know so, yeah, yeah so they just by adding the windows to it you you and, and all the glass it increases the space to it which i can see how you wouldn't necessarily want that if in the real white house because you would want to be able to sort of close some doors and make sure that nobody can see in or lip read yeah, or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I think you'd need some secrecy considering, yeah. you know, like, you know, the kind of sensitive information that's passed around in the White House. On the Trump administration, I think he was the one that mainly leaked more things than anyone else, you know? Man couldn't get his hand, his tiny hands off Twitter. But anyway, that's for a conversation no. for another time. After leaving the show, Aaron Sorkin claimed that when he began watching the season 5 premiere, the first episode to be written without him, he turned it off after less than a minute and never watched another episode. He likened the experience to watching someone make out with my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I this can is, feel, um... I can see that. I can see that happening. So this is the thing. Apparently he had the advice from Larry David, who's the, the Curb Your Enthusiasm guy, who also wrote for for Seinfeld, you know, and he said, you know, whenever when you get, when you leave, just don't watch it because one of two things will happen: either it will be terrible and you'll incredibly regret your decision to leave and all the rest of it, or it will be fantastic and you'll really regret your decision to leave because you want to be part of it. You know, I can imagine so you, you just, can't win you, either way. You just sort of interweave so much of your own dna into something like that it it just it becomes a little piece of you and and i can't see i can't see it being easy leaving yeah. like a show that's got so much um of your own stamp on it like it's like leaving a piece of yeah. you behind i imagine absolutely so the fun thing is now is that the most casual viewer 
who was seen from like season five to seven now knows stuff that the creator of the show doesn't know. So you are arguably know just as much as Aaron Sorkin about the West Wing. I bet, I bet for him it must feel like fan fiction almost, you know, because he's not writing it. <laughs> While critics often praise the West Wing for its writing, others faulted the show as unrealistically optimistic and sentimental. A large part of this criticism came from the perceived naivete of the characters. Mm-hmm. Television critic Heather Havrileski asked... What rock did these morally pure creatures crawl out from under? And, more important, how do you go from innocent millipede to White House staffer without becoming soiled or disillusioned by the dirty realities of politics along the way? Uh, And to that, I just say, it's a TV show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, this is this is something that's uh, that's frequently uh, aimed at it in terms of criticism. I mean, if you want to see uh, a dour, depressing version of the White House, then House of Cards is fine. I mean, for the last four years, the news has done a brilliant job of that as well. I was going to say House of Cards would be my go-to. If you want something that's just going to make you go, all politicians are absolute snakes, just me and you, hun, from now on, then watch that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, just me and you, hun. That's I'm just I'm just picturing you now in front of a vinyl sticker with "Live, Laugh, Love" written oh, in, in your in your house. You no, know, saying, no. "Oh, that all snakes. It's just me and you, hun. Like you and me against the world." Tell you what, mate. That those bloody Democrats are all snakes. I don't think I'll be hanging out with them anymore. Just me, you ain't White House, love. I. <laughs> anyway, uh, and last last one for this one. So the West Wing is noted for developing the walk and talk long steady cam tracking shots showing characters walking down hallways while involved in long conversations. In a typical walk and talk shot, the camera leads two characters down a hallway as they speak to each other. One of these characters generally breaks off and the remaining character is then joined by another character who initiates another conversation as they continue walking. These walk and talks create a dynamic feel for what would otherwise be long expository dialogue and have become a staple for dialogue intensive television show scenes since then absolutely there's one scene in a hotel where it starts off in the hotel ballroom goes down the stairs through the kitchen along a corridor and finally coming out to the to the, mm. the car outside and you will fall in love with that shot you know i i and can't wait to see that <laughs> sounds delicious it's, uh, it became a sort of staple you'll see it in some of uh, joss whedon's work with like firefly and things like that that kind of almost scorsese-esque goodfellas mm. feel of like how long can we make this shot last for actors like it because it means that they get to sort of perform a scene sort of all the way through rather than being this kind of chop and change kind of thing and it's a way of trying to make exposition, which can be an absolute nightmare to film, a bit more visually interesting because things are constantly moving and happening all the time. It really does mean that the actors have to have an incredible level of discipline. I think it's a good way to sort of make exposition not boring and make it feel as though it's engaging and, you know, a, an interesting part of a story. Because sometimes if you just have someone just talking, just like, and then this happened and we have to do this because the people have done this and blah, it can be a little bit sort of like, okay, come on, get to the point. Yeah. Let's, where's, all the, where's all the good stuff? So I think doing something like that, I, yeah, I, I, I'm really... I'm I'm really a big fan of it myself in in a lot of mediums. Absolutely. Anyway, that's me. That is awesome. Thank you, Phil. So, uh, interesting one this today. We've got a, a, a guest from another podcast. 
I reached out a few months back to uh, the RE podcast because uh, I kept seeing this stuff on Twitter and I was like, hey, you're actually pretty awesome. Do you want to collaborate sometime? You podcast, uh, I podcast. We should probably podcast together. Come on, let's do it. (laughs) You have a podcast, I have a podcast. Do you want to be mates? And so far that approach seems to be working quite well from what I can see. So I (laughs) guested on the RE podcast a few weeks back about Messiah figures in film because, you know. And today we're going to get to hear Louisa talk about the West Wing. I'll let her introduce herself. Hello, my name is Louisa Jane Smith of the RE Podcast, and I'm here to have a chat to Giles about the West Wing. Louisa, it is lovely to finally have you on my show. Welcome to the God in Film Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I feel very honoured to be on it. (laughs) So, uh, Louisa and I sort of um, met up over Instagram and sort of uh, agreed for a little collaboration, and our talks tend to sort of go on for hours. We're going to try and keep this one nice and short for you, but we make no promises, okay? The West Wing. How did it come about? So Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the teleplay for West Wing, had made a film uh, in the mid-90s, around 95, called The American President, where um, Martin Sheen is actually the chief of staff. Mm. And it, what it feels like is that he sort of had excess material. Yeah. He sort of had some extra stuff that he didn't get into the film uh, because it had quite a short sort of running time that he sort of didn't want to waste. Um, and I think he was encouraged by um, sort of fellow screenwriter and producer, Akiva Goldsman, who has a fantastic back catalogue of movies yeah. and series. And I think with that little bit of encouragement, the, the West Wing was born. And so you can see quite a few crossovers between the American president in its in its sort of narrative and its style and its camera work and, and even some sort of actors. Martin Sheen, who was chief of staff, then becomes the president in, in the West Wing. In one episode, episode it is literally made up of pages that they had left over from the american president i think this when they start talking about a proportionate response in the situation room i think that's yes. fascinating what you said about akiva yes. goldman i didn't know there was ever any connection between the two of them yeah and, and i've done a bit of research and just sort of cursory i can't find any projects that they particularly worked on together but i just think they're obviously sort of contemporaries of each other and and hold each other in in high regard and uh, and i think i think aaron sorkin is quite a prolific writer so i think his mind works at a much faster rate than than most of ours and I think he just had so many ideas that actually managed to make a a, a, a series with 20 episodes of a season and that's incredibly dialogue heavy you know so yeah. his his mind must have just been working on overtime and he had this amazing um series of of ideas and and concepts absolutely well I mean is he he starts off as a as a playwright doesn't he it's a, it's a few good good men that gets uh that's his first thing so it's so a lot of the the West Wing content is essentially sort of plays put on TV, but they they put in throw in things like the uh, the walk and talk to make it a bit more visually stimulating. Yeah. What are some of your favourite things about the West Wing? I think one of my favourite things is that it Mr Miyagi'd me. <laughs> so it did something without me realising, which I think is incredible. <laughs> So I I watched, I, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge about American politics or even a particular interest in it. This series was recommended to me and I, and I watched it. And I spent the first sort of two seasons with Google open, having to quick, I don't know what that is. What's a filibuster, you know, and how, what's the Senate and what, you know, sort of, what, where's the hill, you know? And so there's so many words and, and sort of terms that I just didn't have any understanding of. Mm-hmm. So you're there and you're listening to this dialogue and it's incredibly dense and it's very political and economic and, you know, full of these references that you, you can't quite follow. 
And you watch these two seasons and then you get to the end of season two and you are sobbing. And you're like, how did that happen? How, I've, how have I become so invested in this storyline and in these characters when it's very much outside my experience and knowledge base? So I thought there's something quite incredible about this. So I think that's one of the things I love about it. I think the other thing is probably a lot of people listening have had an experience over the the last decade or so where we felt frustrated with the people that are in power. Mm -hmm. So whoever that might be in whatever country, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that frustration. What the West Wing does is it creates uh, an administration that is, what if? What if the people in power had integrity and had wisdom what would that look like and so you're kind of living vicariously through these characters that have been created in a world where people just do the right thing but I think what's clever is it's not idealistic it's very real and these are flawed characters that Mm. make you know make mistakes so you know you've got a chief of staff who's an alcoholic and a a drug addict and you've got uh, a deputy um, communications officer who dates a cool girl and you've got an american president that lies yeah i I don't want to spoil too much so you've got these storylines where you've got these flawed characters but watching how they deal with it they deal with those flaws in a very wise way with showing a lot of integrity so there's just this sense of hope of what it could be if we had good people in power. So I think they're the two things that I love about it. And it uses, obviously, fictional storylines based on real life. So it is relatable. And you can think, oh, yeah, so that relates to that real life historical event. And that's what they could have done. Talking about that, one of of the things that was most fascinating, because I was a a fan, like, from the broadcast era, from the time it was was being broadcast over here. And, uh, I mean, I remember sort of watching it when I was 17 and doing my A-levels. And I remember literally one of the things that my brain thought about uh, at some point after 9-11 is oh my gosh, how is this going to affect the West Wing? Yeah. And the fact that they they don't try to sort of work it in. They literally have this little standalone episode that tries to yeah. to address it to the best of their ability and mm. then they move on, I thought was an incredibly classy way of doing things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to admit, I came late to it so I probably watched it um, around maybe, you know, eight or nine years after it was first broadcast. So I was kind of late to the show. But what that meant was I could watch it, binge watch it. I didn't have to wait for each new episode. Also meant and, you and, got to be able to, to watch it with IMDb handy, which would have been really useful. You know? Absolutely. It's such a successful programme that people genuinely wanted Martin Sheen as the president of the United States. And there was a sort of campaign of Bartlett for president. And you thought, well, actually, if Aaron Sorkin was the chief speechwriter for the administration, <laughs> you know, if or if Leo McGarry was the chief of staff, you know, you actually wanted these people in power, mm. that they were that convincing. And I think now if Martin Sheen ever walked into a room, I think people would stand up because I think he's got such presence um, <laughs> and such gravitas as, a, as an actor and, and obviously the, the script is, is is out of this world so it's a sort of example of some perfect script work and perfect casting so why do you think it's still so culturally significant I mean the first episode aired well over 20 years ago now and yet mm. it still seems to have made some kind of lasting impact on on uh, society. Why do you think that is? Well, it's not because of the fashion, because the suits in the first season are terrible, <laughs> and they're very dated. But I think it's that is that you know the human condition don't doesn't change. Humans don't change, and politics doesn't change. Is that every administration is dealing with the same problems over and over again? So I think that's why 
it, it, it's probably still resonates today. And as I was saying, you know, we've all felt frustrated. So it, it, it's sort of this like um, oasis of a place we could go where there's yeah. there's hope and, and there's wisdom. The dialogue is is unique in that how qu- quick and dense it is, but it's it it's accessible. Mm-hmm. You can understand it, and you feel cleverer watching it. Absolutely. Um, you know, and and then you you know you sort of mentioned the sort of like uh, the sort of walk and talk sort of camera work where you're just following these characters as they're walking around the West Wing, having these significant conversations. So you feel part of that administration. You feel like you're working in in the West Wing. So I just think it it was ahead of its time when it when it was aired and so therefore it stood the test of time it's still dealing with issues that we're struggling with and seeing in the world and seeing our, our world leaders um uh, struggle with mm-hmm. but it's got hopeful and and it's real it's authentic and it's got characters in it that are flawed and you know i just think we can all relate to that as well so it's not this idealistic i can't relate to these people they're people that are real and and it, and in some ways it's not just about american politics it's about the state of the human condition which is always going to be relatable definitely honestly louisa your passion for this show comes out in every single syllable it absolutely resonates from you listen thank you so much for talking to us today do you have anything you would like to plug yes so uh coming up i've got quite an exciting series of podcasts on the history of religion so we're looking back into ancient religions like mesopotamia and stone age uh burials and indigenous religions um and giving a bit of a whistle stop tour for anyone who's interested in that there are some very exciting guests but they're quite secret at the moment awesome Awesome. Um, I'm just going to, can I just very quickly say my two most interesting West Wing facts? And if you want to edit them in, you can fabulous. absolutely. If you've do already that, said yeah. them, don't. So, my first one is that um, Martin Sheen has a birth defect from when he was born, which means he can't put a jacket on normally. So, every time you see him as an actor playing the president, he does the little little twist thing, and that's because of, birth, of a birth defect, which I thought was interesting. The other interesting thing is that Sam Seaborn was meant to be so um, the main character. Well, that was why. Um... Rob Lowe ended up leaving yes, because he, because originally the show was meant to be sort of based around him and then you start adding more and more fantastic actors you originally weren't going to see the president in the, in no. the first case you'd only see him sort of from the background and just popping in every so do you know who they originally had lined up to play the president um, it wasn't Val Kilmer, was it? It wasn't Val Kilmer. No, no. that's <laughs> left field choice. It was Sidney Poitier. Um, oh. But Which is interesting because af- that would have been interesting forecasting in a way. Mm. Well, they could they couldn't afford him basically. Okay. <laughs> they went with Martin Sheen because he was cheaper. Yeah. Talking about forecasting, spoilers for for anyone who's not seen the the later seasons. But the character of Santos, who ends up sort of becoming mm. the the presidential candidate for the Democrats in the thing, he was actually inspired by Barack Obama. The screenwriters literally just got onto uh, Obama's uh, staff who had been, because he'd been a keynote speaker at a Democratic conference. And they were like, hey, this guy's pretty interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about him? So mm. there is a direct connection between Santos and Ob- Obama. It's not just yeah. a, uh, a delightful coincidence. Absolutely. And obviously everyone has to see CJ Craig do the jackal. Definitely. Say no more. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Louisa. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Giles. So now it's time for Finding the Faith in the Film. Awesome. I don't know how many more different ways I can do that. <laughs> You're doing it beautifully. I think Thanks. it's wonderful. So when it comes to this show, there are lots of different things that we could talk about. 
um, we could span throughout entire seasons. But of course, Phil's only watched like one or maybe two episodes. So I'm really going to have to be careful about sort of doing this in a non-spoiler way. I got three watched. So we're going to look at three episodes. Two we're going to sort of glance through and then the last one we're going to really focus on. So the first one I wanted to look at is a season one episode called Take This the Sabbath Day. In that episode, a inmate on death row has his final appeal turned down by the Supreme Court. And the only thing that can possibly stop him from being executed is if the president grants clemency. And there's the, the entire episode sort of centers around this. There's his uh, head of communications, Toby Ziegler, who's a, uh, a Jewish man. He goes to a sermon at Temple where it's all about murder. Joey Lucas, who's a Quaker, also says that she he should grant clemency, all this sort of things. He calls the Bishop of Rome, and the Bishop of Rome goes by another name, His Holiness the Pope. And in the end, he just gets a, um, a parish priest to come and talk to him uh, about what he should do. And he eventually decides not to grant clemency, and that's where the episode ends. Yeah. And there's a there's a brilliant sort of talk right at the end where the um, where the priest tells him about the the story. A man hears a radio broadcast about a flood coming and he thinks no I'll be fine God loves me God will protect me and then the waters come and a boat comes along and says hey come on get in the boat let's get out of here it says no no I believe in God God loves me God will protect me and the boat goes away and then of course the water is rising eventually he's sitting on the top of his roof and then a helicopter comes along and says come on we'll get you out of here we'll be fine and he says no I believe in God God loves me God will protect me and the helicopter goes and the water rises and he drowns and then he turns up in heaven he goes through the pearly gates and he <laughs> says to God he goes up to the pearly gates and basically goes God what were all that about? <laughs> you know what I mean? I did. I prayed loads to you, and you still didn't save me. At which point, he just goes, "Well, did you not hear the broadcast or the the, the guy in the bow? Or oh, wait, there was a helicopter as well. Maybe I should have God written on the helicopter, and maybe you'll know." God basically says, "I sent you all these things. What the hell are you doing here?" So <laughs> we're not going to spend too too long on this. If your job says you should kill someone and your faith says no, obviously don't kill them. I feel that shouldn't we do that doesn't even need explaining that much, you know? Yeah. No, I, th- I think that just killing someone just in general is is just a, a kind of a rule of thumb absolute no-no for all of life, you know what I mean? Like, mm. you don't, you don't, no the, one has the right to that power. There is a, a longer conversation to be had about when your uh, professional role conflicts with your religious beliefs, and I have a horrible, horrible feeling we'll talk about gay wedding cakes at some point, but today is not going to be the day we talk about that. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about is the Portland trip. Did you see that one? I did see that one. That was the one that's on the plane, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happens on that one is that the president and most of his staff are on the plane to Portland. They're taking a, a late night flight there whilst Josh is dealing with a Republican congressman who is trying to pass what's basically a Defense of Marriage Act. The idea that marriage is, would be sort of recognized as being exclusively between uh, a man and a woman. And the that congressman is, is a Republican congressman. He's promoting it. He's also gay, so it's it seems antithetical to him. It seems counterintuitive. And there's a line in it. We're not going to get into that too much, but there's a, a line in it where the president says, it's legalized gay bashing, Josh. He says it over the phone from the plane. Now, this was weird. Not weird. This was revelatory because this is the first time I'd seen anything in pop culture where 
there was someone who was a devout Christian that their 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 credentials as a Christian were unimpeachable, but they were pro gay rights. So have you ever heard of something called Section Twenty Eight? I've heard of it. I don't actually know what it is. Okay. This is one of those areas where you are just too young to remember it. There's a lot of them areas, to be fair. <laughs> so I rely a lot on other people's knowledge <laughs> to be able to gain that. So. Okay. I was 17 around the year 2000 when people were talking about Section 28, so it sticks in my mind. Basically, from 1988, Margaret Thatcher's government brought in one particular rule that said that local authorities were not allowed to do anything that would promote a homosexual lifestyle. And as part of that, it also meant that teachers were not allowed to talk about homosexuality to their students in any positive way whatsoever. What do you think of that? How in the name of anything good did that get promoted and passed? Like, what? what mm. is... Was, it, was this in the 90s? It happened in 1988, and it was abolished in 2000. So it went all the way oh, through the 90s. So basically, pretty much all my schooling, with the, with the exception of the last year. That's appalling, because... Well, I mean, imagine that in today's climate. There'd be people in the streets... Not that you're allowed Absolutely. to do that anymore, like to, to a certain degree, but still, you know. Yeah. So the effect of that was, was that nobody educated was telling my generation of school kids about homosexual issues and gay rights or homophobia or anything like that. Now, it was a much more uh, openly homophobic culture back in the 90s. So the only areas where we were learning about this stuff was TV. You know, TV was the, the thing that was becoming, that was actually talking about it. I think Anna Friel had the first same-sex kiss on British TV in an episode of Brookside. But if you weren't a big soap watcher, and uh, the only things that were talking about these things, it was basically this and Dawson's Creek, you know? So there wasn't a lot going out there that you could, <laughs> yeah, you could really sort of grip to it. Anything that was American and had those themes that was being syndicated over in the UK would be the only way you'd be able to see that unless there was a particularly, you know, sort of gripping storyline in a soap or something like that in the UK, so... I mean, it certainly felt like it. I mean, I'm sure people can come up with plenty of examples that said, no, they talked about it in this and they talked about it in that and, and all the rest of it. But for me and for the type of shows I was watching in the late 90s and early noughties, these were the only things. And Christianity and homosexuality were always presented as binaries, as two things that you were that were antithetical, that you couldn't mm. you couldn't resolve them in any way, shape, or form. And I will be totally honest, my views on gay rights and LGBTQ issues have not always been as evolved as they are now. And to, to a certain extent, that's on me. But to a certain extent, that's also on the people who were teaching me at the time, you know? I was 17. I certainly didn't have the most evolved views on pretty much anything at the time. And this example of somebody who definitely loved God, but who was definitely pro-gay rights, was fascinating. And it's an, it's something that I come back to regularly in my brain. The first time that I was able to reconcile those two things was reading uh, a lady called Vicky Beeching's book. She wrote a book called Undivided. Basically, she's a she's an English singer-songwriter who wrote gospel music. So she was 
was taken on uh, over in the States and she was absolutely embraced and they loved her and everything. Yeah. And being a lesbian, being attracted to women and having to hide that, having to sort of tamp that down started to affect her health on a, on a serious level. She actually ended up having a bit of a breakdown. Well, it would, wouldn't it? Like it, it's, that is fundamentally yeah. who you are as a person. Like, just as a side note from what you're saying, I think it's appalling that, that it's for so long it was treated as like an illness or a phase or something like that, that you would be homosexual or bisexual yeah. or, or even feel as though that you weren't the correct gender and you wanted to be, you wanted to change your gender um, or, or even just change your sex. That, that, that is, it's something that as we've seen throughout history in many different modes and forms with many different people and it's it's effectively denying people being themselves and the the, mm. the damage that must do to somebody i can't imagine living with that and i can't imagine living in a society like that and personally i just find it really frustrating because it seems like yeah. pig-headedness and to be extremely close-minded and i i, I just that's not the way that's not the path to progression i agree with you i'm also probably a bit more sympathetic in, in this area to to people who are who are genuinely uh loving to everyone they meet homosexual um bisexual mm. or, or anything else but they still can't quite reconcile it with god and that's because as we've talked about in, uh, I think, Corinthians, um, St. Paul is quite explicitly against homosexuality in that, or at least yeah. the way it's the way the English translation of it says that it seems to be against it. Do you remember we talked about Arsenicoit's Malakoy in, in Arrival episode and the idea that it might possibly be a mistranslation? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, I do so remember that. what you'll find is there are a lot of Christians out there who I think want to be accepting, want to be pro-gay rights, but they need, like, the biblical coverage for it. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, they need I, some, I think They need so. to be able to find something in the Bible that backs up this this point. When I read Vicky Beeching's book, that's the one that really helped me because she talked about... I really wasn't planning on talking too long about this, <laughs> but she talked about um, St. Peter in, in Acts. I, I, uh, I can't remember the chapter. Like I say, I wasn't planning on talking about this bit, but a short version is that... When Jesus ascends to heaven, all the apostles go and they tell everyone about Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. But the rules of Christianity have not been codified at this point. Nobody knows exactly what things are and exactly how things are. Um, Jesus has been talking for, for so long, but it's not always been um, effectively written down or trying to connect with those people. So Peter thinks that the good news of Jesus Christ is only for Jewish people, right? He thinks, well, okay, so Israel is G is God's chosen people. The son of God came to Israel. So it's clearly just for us, right? Yeah, and I get that. God shows, gives him this vision. And the, the gist of it is like, no, this is for everybody. This goes out to absolutely everybody. There's a similar thing where Vicky Beecher makes a point of, we're always taught that it's meant to be for everybody. Oh, except gay people. This is, that's not they can't have this this isn't acceptable and yet yeah. when we look whenever there's somebody who we're told that they're wrong something about them's not quite right or something like that you can guarantee that's where jesus will be going jesus will be talking to a, a samaritan woman he'll be talking to an unmarried woman he'll be talking to romans everybody who you think that they are wrong 
that there's something about them that is wrong, Jesus will be the first one there going, my love is for you. It's not just for, it's not just for these people. I find it fascinating the amount of people who misinterpret that and say things like, well, that's not that's not what I would think would be of the Lord, as it were, you know, homosexuality or, or you know, well, anything, basically. When as really, for if I know anything about Christianity, it seems to be that Jesus would be like, no, I, I want to welcome everybody. We can all come to my club, you know, like we can all we can all sit in the same room and be friends. I feel like that sometimes gets misinterpreted quite mm. a lot. But I'm not saying by everybody who's who well, believes in God, but I'm just saying that there's there seems to be a large amount of people who say who will who will be very religious and also be sort of for example against people being homosexual or gay rights or anything to do with homosexuality because they yeah. think it's not correct I, I, i'm not saying that's for everybody i'm just saying that this this it seems to happen a lot and i don't know why yeah yeah like i say if you imagine it as as there's there's three sort of strands within modern day christianity okay there's the people who have uh, reconciled the two things that they've they found a way that they're that they're okay with it and not just okay but also able to to embrace it there are people quite a sizable chunk i'd say in the middle who are genuinely struggling they absolutely want to love their homosexual brothers and sisters they absolutely want to follow god sincerely they are still struggling to reconcile that Mm-hmm. Those people I've got a lot of time for because I was that. And then yeah. you have the Westboro Barra Baptist Church. You know, you've got full yeah. on hardcore bigots, and I don't have time for their nonsense. You know? Yeah, that I, I think that's who I'm, I mean. Like people like the Westboro Baptist Church who just don't make any sense in my head. <laughs> Basically, they just mm-hmm. I don't understand them. Yeah, we'll talk a few about some of the issues related to this in some later episodes. But what I want to move on to is the absolute big dog of West Wing episodes. The one that everybody talks about. The one that is probably my favourite and I think you can probably guess what it is. It's Two Cathedrals. I loved that episode. It It was was brilliant. It was something else, wasn't it? Oh yes. So that had a uh, phenomenal impact on me. Some fun things to tell you about as well. Have you you got facts for me? I do have a fact for you. First of all, (laughs) check the photo that I've just sent you. Click to open. Right. Ah, I see. You've so that's one you've taken. Yeah, yeah, that is ah. one very shaky photo of the of one of the windows. So basically, this is my way of telling you that I've been to the National Cathedral. Uh, that's that's instantly recognisable from the episode. Yeah. So yeah, I went and visited the National Cathedral in uh, DC specifically because of this episode, and I've got a fun little bit of trivia just for you. Okay. So I've okay. sent you a picture of the of the outside. Yep, I can see that now. And I'm going to send you a little close-up of some of the gargoyles thing attached to it. And you tell me what you see. Okay. (laughs) Is that Darth Vader? That is Darth Vader. There was a competition and somebody won and they literally (laughs) carved Darth Vader as a little (laughs) mini gargoyle onto the National Cathedral. Of course. Obviously they did. You know what I mean? How like, great is if that? you're gonna win a competition to carve something onto a church, of course you're gonna choose something ridiculous, aren't you? That's brilliant. Absolutely. I did <laughs> genuinely look for the Vader thing. I couldn't find it. It was it was too far away for the naked eye, but it is definitely there. I love that. <laughs> so obviously uh, we're going to be talking about the episode two cathedrals. Obviously, we're going to be focusing on the scene where Bartlett basically gives God a good telling off. 
I, th- I was really captivated by that scene. Like, I wasn't really sure what to expect of the West Wing. And when I first started watching it, because I started with that episode, I was sort of like on and off a little bit. And as soon as he said, can you just seal the cathedral for me for a minute to, um, was it John Spencer's character? To Leo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. As soon as he said, as soon as he said, seal that off, it felt like the air in the room changed. Do you know what I mean? It's just, mm. it, it was, it was really good watching, just watching him perform and watching that scene play out. It was brilliant. I just loved yeah. it. <laughs> so Aaron Sorkin tells this story about how he, they were filming the scene, and there were some priests kind of watching at the at the back and the rest of it. And he said, "Okay, this could be a bit tense. I better go and explain to them what's what's going on." He walks up to them and talks to one of the priests and says, "Hi." Uh, just to let you know, uh, the scene here, the main character's gone through quite a traumatic experience. So he's actually going to be shouting at God and and really having a go at him. And the priest responds with, yeah, I know, it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> That's great. I'm so glad they've got a good humour about it. <laughs> yeah. In essence, obviously, with Bartlett at this point, he's had terrible things happen to him. Um, he It's been revealed that he's he lied to the electorate about his, about his health. There is a tropical storm that is endangering some ships. And crucially, he lost Mrs. Landingham, who is not only his secretary, but she's been with him since he was a teenager. She's effectively been like an older sister to him in a lot of ways, you know. He's very raw at this point. And he basically sort of tells God, God off at this scene. Now, is it okay to have an argument with God? I think that if you weren't allowed to have an argument with God then I would question God's integrity to be able to take that kind of criticism. Absolutely. Basically, if you want a real relationship with Jesus, sooner or later, at some point, you're going to get into a fight with God, okay? I've ha- I've been there. I've done this myself. I've had those times where I was so cripplingly lonely that you're like what the hell yeah what is why why are we doing this why are you still making me be on my own am i gonna be alone forever is this what's gonna happen as as you can tell it always comes back to my my romance my love life you know and (laughs) it wouldn't be a sincere relationship if you didn't have an argument with god at some point i totally believe that like i mean even as even as a man who's decided that he doesn't believe in god there have been points where I've been so alone where I've been like, I've, I've looked up and just gone, you know, if you are there, what's going on, man? You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. you just, you get, you get to a point where you're just like, there's got to be something, there's got to be a solution. There's got to be. Why has this happened to me? And it can be anything, really, any situation. The frustrating thing is when you're having an argument with God, but it's one of those times where you can argue with somebody and know full well that they are right in all things and you are definitely in the wrong in this area. And that is a very frustrating way to have an argument with someone. You know? <laughs> I think we've all been there just in regular life, you know, with, with, yeah. with, 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 with people you can speak to. You know, you're just there like, I'm so wrong, but I'm also so full of emotion right now. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's a scene at the end, uh, at the end of the, that monologue, that's in Latin. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at the translation, but it basically translates as, thank you, Lord. Am I to believe these things come from a righteous God, a just God, a wise God? To hell with your punishments. I was your servant, your messenger on earth. I did my duty. To hell with your punishments and to hell with you. 
I love that bit where he starts talking to God in Latin because traditionally, uh, especially for the Catholic belief, services happened in Latin exclusively right up until the 1960s, you know? So it became this belief that Latin was like the language of God and the, the language of the church. Obviously, as we all know, the language of heaven, the language of God is actually, in fact, Welsh and uh, more specifically, <laughs> North Walian. But we're going to gloss over that for the moment. You know? Hello, welcome to heaven, yeah. Can you imagine that? If St. Peter My was gosh. just... St. <laughs> Peter's just there, he's wearing like a Welsh rugby shirt or something, just like, hello! <laughs> this bit about somebody who feels like they are being punished by God brought me to, uh, reminded me of something in the Old Testament called the Book of Job. Have you ever heard of it? Are you vaguely familiar with it? I've heard of the Book of Job. I don't, I'm not familiar with the content. Okay. I'll try and give you the short version as much as possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Job is this guy who lives in the the ancient world. And as best as we can tell, he is pretty much as close to perfect as you're going to get. He loves God. He's devout. He does all the right things. And he's he's just a great bunch of lads. Okay. (laughs) Then... The story switches, believe it or not, to a scene in heaven, to in God's throne room, right? Which is very rare because we don't get that kind of thing going on. And basically, God is having a meeting with his angels, like his senior leadership team. Hmm. And then there's a scene where the character... I'm, I'm going to give you the, the, the Hebrew translation. So the character is is called Ha-Satan. Does that okay. sound sim- like anything to you? Ha-Satan, like Satan? Yeah, Satan is basically there in the in the room and basically God says look at my servant Job isn't he fantastic and Satan or which translates as uh, the accuser okay ha okay. satan the accuser S- satan could mean uh, an accuser like a like a prosecutor but when it's ha satan it's the accuser it mm. tends to mean like satan like the devil right so we'll just call him satan for for this point on because that's the easiest way satan sure, basically sure. says well of course Job loves you. You gave him all this stuff. He's incredibly rich. He's got lots of kids. He's got tons of camel. He's got tons of oxen. Of course he loves you because you give him stuff. If you (laughs) took away that stuff, he's not going to love you. And God says, okay, if you think that's true, then you can take away all those things. Don't touch a hair on his head, though. So what happens next is that Satan basically wipes out everything that Job has. He loses all his livestock. He loses all his crops and his children are killed as well. Oh, yeah, it's pretty intense. All his uh, all his adult sort of children are, uh, all all die, and uh, and he still he's he he does he wears the sackcloth and ashes. He shaves his head and rest of it, but he still believes in God. You know, he still worships God. He still he still praises God and rest of it. Satan comes back and and God is like, ha! What did I tell you? And then Satan responds with, ah, yeah. Obviously, he still worships you because it's not really affecting him. If you actually let him get ill, he will turn on you in a second. And God goes, huh, okay. Well, let's try that. You can hurt him, but you can't actually kill him. So then Job starts getting boils from his soles of his feet up to the top of his head, right? Really sort of painful boils, really, really sort of painful. And his wife says to him, oh, Job, give it up. Just curse God and die. He has these friends who, how can I put it? You know, like when you're having a tragedy, some kind of personal crisis, and you you have friends around you who are trying to help out, but they are actually just the worst. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. These are those guys. We've, we've all They're the them. ones who are saying, no, you must have done something bad. You must have done something terrible for, for God to be treating you like this. And Job is like, there was nothing. I didn't do a thing, you know? What, what, what are you coming at me for? Man's you know? just got loads of sheep, yo. And it carries yo. on like this. This Basically, this whole section of, of Hebrew poetry where Job is hella depressed. He's like cursing the day he was born in the most elaborate forms and the rest of it. And then he does actually get to a point where he does start questioning God and being like, what are you playing at? Yeah. So... In chapter 38, God actually arrives. Chapter 38 of Job, verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. In effect, he doesn't turn up as a person like he's done to Abraham or anything. He literally turns up as a storm. Okay? (laughs) And he says to him, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from its womb? When I made the cloud its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further? Here is where your proud waves halt. Basically, God is saying to him, uh, excuse me, who do you think you are? (laughs) just before we continue what gets me about that you know he's like who do you think you are job's there looking at this cloud thinking like wow be not afraid eh i'm feeling pretty bloody afraid right now (laughs) (laughs) it's like the biblical angels all over again you know the biblically biblically accurate ones that are just eyes and feathers (laughs) just be there like good grief what the hell is that (laughs) yeah so here's here's a question for you have you ever had something where you're the authority, where you know what you're doing, and somebody questions how you're doing it? <laughs> loads. Yeah. Loads. You, loads. Were, you were a manager at Pizza Express, weren't you? I was. I wouldn't say I was the best manager, but I wouldn't say I was the worst manager either. And there were some points where I was just like, no, 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 no. We've got to do it this way because yeah. because because you're wrong and I'm right. And, and that's not because I'm the manager. It's because I'm correct. Yeah. You know? And that's the thing. Sometimes, I mean, you and I have had this where we'll we'll fall out over over something in a, in a script or something. And you and I will sit down and we'll we'll sort of have a debate and we'll thresh it out. And, and between us, we'll come to come to some kind of understanding. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times you have those, you know, a lot of times it's really good to have that kind of open communication and rest of it. But then there are other times where you just have to be like, no, you're wrong. You know, you're wrong and you don't know what you're talking about. The amount of times professionally and personally, you know, it just it's part of it's part of having a, a relationship with anybody. As a teacher, I've had plenty of examples of things like this. I remember having talking about the definition of alliteration with a year seven class. And I'm saying to to them, so alliteration is when you get repetition of the same sounds at the start of a word. And this one beautifully bespectacled, absolutely adorable little girl says to me, no, sir, it's when the words start with the same letter. Ah, yeah, no, I can see where you think that. That's a common misconception. It's the repetition of the same sound, like car keys has different letters, but the same sound. She said, no, sir, you're wrong. Our teacher in primary school told us it is the repetition of the same letter. And you're like, okay, I look, I don't know what to tell you here other than I'm the one who has the English degree yeah. and the teaching qualification. You're, just there like, uh, yeah. you're like, look, you're a real cute so kid just... and you're really wrong. 
Yeah. That's so, that's, that's, so, I, I can imagine that being really difficult. But I can't help but feel <laughs> yeah, like that's, fair, that's, fair. that's how God must feel about things, you know? <laughs> when when somebody's screaming at him and he's like, I, it's not that God don't won't tell you. It's that he can't tell. He can't explain to you why this is wrong because I think your brain would melt. <laughs> so we've come back to this question a lot of time of, of um, you know, if God is real, why do bad things happen? And I found out there's actually a name for this. This is theodicy. All right. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. And it's basically the answer to the question of why God permits evil. It's Isn't that also a poem by Homer? Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I learned this word today, and for all I know, I could be pronouncing it horrendously wrong. If I am, I apologise. I was going to say, you're doing better than me. I've never heard the word before, so... I mean, Roosevelt disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, theodicy is defined as a theological construct that attempts to vindicate God in response to the evidential problems of evil that seems inconsistent with the existence of an omnipotent and omnibenevolent deity. So we keep coming back to this issue of why does God let bad things happen? And I kind of think that is the wrong takeaway because no answer is going to satisfy you. Because if somebody is saying, God, why has this terrible thing happened to me? I don't think they really want an answer. Yeah. I think it's more of a sign of pain and anguish rather than a genuine theological question they just want to have a go at someone because there is no answer mm. really there's there is no real answer unless unless somebody has gone out of their way to wrong you unless there is a person or force that is definitely to blame there's no blame there's nowhere you can put your blame you've just got to absorb the grief and try and move on well i mean if it's if it's something that's bad that's happened to you that is man-made there's an easy explanation you know we have evil in the world people do evil things yeah the yeah. only way we can take that away is taking away their free will which makes the the tricky bit is god why do you let natural disasters happen why do you let sickness happen that sort of thing you know that that's kind of what i was getting and at. the thing like and I think the thing to take away from this is that God does not need to explain himself to you. In some cases, I think he can't explain himself to you because your brain would, would melt, you know? And the, the thing to take away from this is to remember that you're God's servant. You do what God tells you, even when it's hard. In this case, we have somebody who is the most powerful man on earth who is still subject to God's will. I remember I was being in a Christian union at one point and somebody said, don't ever call God your mate. You're not chums. You're not pals. And that's just a level of equality. But sometimes you need to remember a little bit of the, the distance that it is. there is a sovereignty to him. He, is, he did create everything and you kind of need to bow down before him. So that, for me, that's why I call him Lord rather than more often than not, rather than some people who literally are I kid you not, some people call him Daddy God, which I think infantilizes us both. That feels wrong. That that makes me feel a bit ill, yeah. actually. That's a bit strange. <laughs> yeah, you're not, uh, not alone there. Yeah, so this is one of those things where if I was an evangelist, this is one of those probably those things I'd shy away from because literally the takeaway is that God knows all. He works in his particular way. And no, you don't get to know why at the moment. And you might not ever know until you actually get to see him face to face. And that is a difficult pill for people to swallow. In my case, where I was arguing with God about why am I still single? What am I am I going to be alone forever? Or rest of it. The reason why I was having to wait was nothing to do with me. Claire says about this, like, yeah, no, we could have gotten together a lot earlier, but I wasn't finished 
cooking yet. I was still being made into the person that God would need you to be. You know? Yeah. And that's something that I think is is fascinating, that often things are happening in your life and it really has nothing to do with you why they're playing out this way. I think it's a great lesson to learn is that some things, whether it is God or not, are just beyond your control and you can't do anything about it and you've just got Absolutely. to try and take the rough with the smooth and and live as best a life as you can with with the trials and tribulations that are set before you absolutely but also there's an aspect to that which is freeing because it means that you don't have to jump through hoops for good things to happen or mm. you don't have to beat yourself up when bad things happen sometimes things are great sometimes things are terrible and sometimes you there was nothing you could do to influence those things either way. It's kind of nice in a way, really. <laughs> Going back to managers, having been a manager, and now I've gone to mm-hmm. a job where I'm no longer a manager, there is an element that is very freeing where I don't have to make any big decisions and I can just be I can just be a cog in the machine because being a cog in the machine, no one really no one really looks to uh, replace you unless you're faulty. So as long as you're doing your job correctly, you're not going to get pulled up on anything or bothered. And it's kind of nice, really, because you just sort of do your own thing and then you've got time to do other stuff afterwards. It's, it's good. I think it's a good thing. It's nice to have a a weight off your mind. So that is the end of our Finding the Faith in the Film section, and that is the end of our episode. Phil, how have you dealt with all the things I've tried to cram into your brain today? The way I deal with it usually is I just sort of come away from it and talk to Elise for a bit about what we've talked about, and uh, I don't know, go and have a root beer or something. (laughs) Just, you know, just keep carrying on my life pretty much. But uh, no, I've enjoyed it. It's been nice to sort of, I always enjoy the kind of discourse we have because I think it generates some really interesting parallels between our different ways of living our lives. And I find it I find it fascinating. Awesome. awesome. Well, listen, save me a root beer and we're going to oh, we'll meet <laughs> up and we'll plan our next bit of world domination. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and thank you for joining us so much for this series. And we hope to see you soon. Phil, have you had a good time? Absolutely. And um, I'm going to go watch some more West Wing in a bit. Awesome. So, so glad I brought that into your life. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Gordon Film is a Dash production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, you know what? You're not getting Uncle Fluffy on this one. If you think we deserve a one star, you're wrong. Just wrong. So just stand there in your wrongness, and be wrong, and get used to it. And while you're at it, bring us the finest muffins and bagels in all the land. What's next?